this week we'll be in Genesis 46 uh, through 47:12, and I would like to open with prayer, and then we'll do a little recapping, and then jump into chapter 46. So let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for our Wednesday night time where we get to gather and uh, just dive into the Word together. I'm thankful for the time that you've given us in Genesis and the many things you've shown us. I pray that tonight would not be any different, that you would give us wisdom, insight, discernment, understanding where we would otherwise not have it. Lord, I confess our dependence upon the work of the Spirit, knowing that if the Spirit doesn't move, then this is just a, a uh, kind of a useless gathering. And so we humble ourselves before you. We know, Lord, that you are great, you're greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. We know that it is a sweet privilege to open the word because it is, in fact, breathed out by you. We know that we need it so that we can be uh, trained and equipped for every good work. We know that it is alive and that it is working. We know that the word is like a a two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from ever taking for granted this time that we get to, to dive into it. Uh, Lord, this, this is all about you. Um, it's not just about gaining knowledge. But, Lord, I pray uh, what your word says in Romans, that we would truly be transformed by the renewal of our minds. I pray, Lord, that as I have prepared to teach, that I wouldn't just depend upon my preparations, but um, that I would uh, be guided specifically and carefully, uh, by you and your hand. Uh, we're completely dependent upon you. We're, we're needy, and uh, we're humbled and thankful at uh, the work that you're doing that you allow us to be a part of as your children. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Genesis, uh, we are now focusing on the life of Joseph and his family. Uh, creation just gets a few chapters, and, and Joseph gets like three times as many chapters, three, four times as many chapters as creation itself. And so what we see is that God and his breathed out word wants us to focus on the life of Joseph, and then we have things to learn from the way that God moves in his life, the way that he responds to God's movement, the way that it affects other people. So uh, in Joseph's life, uh, y'all tell me what happened to Joseph. He, he was... He was brought up, and who, who's Joseph's dad? Just to make sure we're all on the same page, who's Joseph's dad? Jacob. What's Jacob's other name? Israel. So was a country named after a guy, or was a guy named after a country? Okay, good. That took a little bit too long. We're going to jump right back into this. Um, uh, okay, so his father is Jacob, and... What did his father give him when he was a younger man? A coat. A coat of what? Many colors. That's correct. It was not a bland, boring coat. It was a coat of many colors. And did Joseph humbly wear that and carefully speak to his brothers in regards to dreams that he had had? No. He is essentially uh, that little brother that we have all heard of where you know, he opens his mouth and you just kind of want to punch him in his nose when he does so. Uh, that's what Joseph was. He, he had a dream. What was the dream that he had? Well, not sort of. Sheaves. We'll go with sheaves. 
And uh, the sheaves, uh, his sheaves were better and their sheaves were bowing down. And so he was sort of going around saying, you know, I had these dreams, I got this coat, and his brothers finally had enough of it. Um, and not acting in a God-fearing way, what did his brothers do? They sold him into slavery. Now, what was the original plan? Let's kill him. But what is there not enough of in just killing him? There's not enough money to be made if you just kill him. Uh, We might as well turn a profit on this deal. So what they do is they say, let's throw him into the pit, leave him in there. We'll draw him out of the pit only to sell him into slavery. So he ended up where? Egypt. Now, once he got to Egypt, what happened? Went to work at Potiphar's house. And was Potiphar married to a wonderful God-fearing lady? No, no. Potiphar's wife was not that. In fact, Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph and uh, kept making one pass after another. Joseph ran away, rightly, did something that a lot of men would not do, and he ran away. He said no, and because of his good, God-fearing actions, he was blessed abundantly and protected, right? Sort of. He ended up where? Prison. Now, how do you end up in prison for doing the right thing? People lie, like Potiphar's wife. She lied. She said he tried to do something, and he was like, "Uh uh-uh, and then he was in jail because Potiphar's wife was the wife of Potiphar, who was the master of the slave Joseph, got it put in jail. So, uh, in jail, what happened to him? What happened to Joseph? Did he sit there and whine like a little baby? He got put in charge of the jail. That's not normal, right? You don't hear of that on the news very often, that a prisoner has done so well, he was put in charge of the jail. Normally, that's not the case. In Joseph's case, it was different. Why was Joseph prospering in the work that he was doing? God was what? Blessing him, with him. God said, I will be with you, and I will bless you. And so whatever Joseph was putting his hand to, he was doing so for the glory of the Lord, and it was in fact the Lord who was making his glory known through the life of Joseph, to such a degree that he was put in charge of the prison, and then he met a cupbearer and a baker. Now, why are the cupbearer and the baker in prison? Yeah, King Pharaoh put him there because they made him mad in whatever way you can make him mad as a cupbearer or the baker. They skimped on the wine or gave him old cake. I don't really know. Um, But uh, so they are in prison, and they both have dreams, right? The cupbearer and the baker both have dreams, and it troubles them because there's no one there to tell them what their dreams mean. What does the dreams mean? And Joseph says, well, you know, those dreams, they belong to God. So the dreams that you had, uh, it belongs to God and, and Essentially, I'm one of God's children, so let me take a crack at it. Tell tell me what the dream was. And so they share their dreams, and Joseph uh, um, essentially uh, prophesies or or, or explains the dream, actually. Sorry, I misspoke. He explains the dreams, and what what comes of it is uh, what happens to the cupbearer, what happens to the baker. For the cupbearer, it was what? Your head is lifted up. For the baker... Your head was lifted off, which is bad news for the baker, because when your head is lifted off, you're, you're dead. And so um, that was bad news for the baker. And the cupbearer was, in fact, put back in uh, to Pharaoh's house and reinstated to his job. And the baker was, uh, was killed. Um, and upon leaving, Joseph says to the cupbearer, hey, dude, 
uh, when you get out of here, remember me. I'm not supposed to be here. This is, this is bad news. Like, this, I w- this is unjust, and I shouldn't be here, so just don't forget about me when you get out. That's a sweet break, right? You're put in charge. You can tell the dreams. And the guy who's getting out is going back to Pharaoh's house. There's a little sway there. Don't forget about me. And sure enough, he didn't forget about him. And, and he remembered him when? Two years later. So uh, by that time, I'm sure he was a little frustrated with the cupbearer. But uh, he was brought out because why? What happened? What, what caused Joseph to be able to come out of prison? Pharaoh had a dream, and Pharaoh didn't know what the dream meant. And the cupbearer said, hey, I know a guy. He's in prison, but I know a guy. Don't you wish you could say that? I know a guy. He's in the clank right now, but I know him. I know a guy. Um, That's what it is with Joseph. He was in prison. The cupbearer says, I know him. Pharaoh says, bring him out. So they bring him out. He has to shower because he stinks. He shaves, gets cleaned up, and goes to see the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh tells him the dream, and what does Joseph do? He rightly interprets the dream. That's exactly right. That's a big point. We need to make sure we know that he rightly interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And he did it in such a manner that when he was done with the interpretation, Pharaoh said, all right, cool. Why don't you be in charge of taking care of all that? Because it sounds hard. And so Joseph went from being cast into a pit, sold into slavery, wrongly accused, imprisoned, yet worked hard while he was in prison, worked to a place where he gained the, the uh, guard's trust, where he was overseeing the prison. He trusted the Lord. The Lord gave him the ability to say what these dreams meant. The cupbearer gets out, tells the Pharaoh, and before you know it, he's standing before the most powerful man in the world telling him what his dreams mean, and the most powerful man in the world at the time is looking at Joseph, a Hebrew, and saying, I want you to be in charge of all that because it seems like you got some insight there. And so here, we've seen him go from like pit of despair to a guy of worldwide influence. And what has happened is that there has been a plague, and there has been a drought, and um, there has been um, hard times that have come upon the land of Canaan and all surrounding areas, and it becomes a worldwide thing where Joseph is in fact in charge of distributing grain to the whole world. So he's moved from a place of a large influence as a Hebrew in Egypt to now it's worldwide influence. And so his brothers are in Canaan. They don't have food. It gets pretty desperate. And they have to go to Egypt to get grain. And that's kind of where we're picking back up in the story. We're in the middle of the brothers going back to Egypt to get grain. And so they go back. And what does Joseph do when he sees his brothers? He tests them. Is it wrong to test people? No. Why did he test them? Yeah. Yeah. Were they trustworthy before? No. Like if someone uh, uh, threatens to kill you and sells you into slavery, next time you see them, don't just give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you should show some discernment, some wisdom, and say, let's, let's test the waters a little bit here and see if you're trustworthy. Um, if someone has stolen over and over and over again, sometimes we think, well, we just got to trust them. Mm, let's see if they're trustworthy before we trust them with our wallet or whatever. And so that's what he does. He shows wisdom, he shows discernment, and he tests them. How does he test them? They come get grain, they go home, and what's in the sack? Their money. Uh, So it looks like they stole. And then they have a meal, and they go back, and what's in the sack? 
the silver cup. And so he's put them in this um, predicament. And then finally, last time we met, he, um, he reveals himself to them. And in, in chapter 45, it says, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He's already asked about his father a lot, but he knows his brothers aren't necessarily trustworthy. trustworthy. They could just be being fairly opportunistic and they could be liars saying, yeah, we got to get back to our dad. We got to get back to our dad. We got to get back to our dad when maybe, um, maybe dad's not even around anymore. So he, he finally, he says, uh, it's me. It's Joseph. I know I look like an Egyptian because I've lived here for a while, but it's me. And um, is, is dad really still alive? And they say, yes. And so he makes this plan to where they're going to get um, uh, Jacob and the rest of the family and bring them back to Egypt to care for them and to, in fact, preserve an entire people for the glory of God and for the good of this generation sitting right here in this room right now. That, that's what's cool about this. When we read the, our Old Testament, it's not just stories in a faraway land long, long ago. In fact, what happens here, the movement we're going to look at tonight uh, directly impacts the fact that you are sitting here as people who fear the Lord. So let's look at chapter 46, verse 1. Previously, uh, in chapter 45, at the end, um, they told him all the words, and then they said, look at all these wagons, like Pharaoh sent this stuff so that we could take our whole uh, little nation of Israel here and go there. And so he sees it all, and he realizes, oh my goodness, my sons are serious. Joseph is still alive. And he closes chapter 45 by saying, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so now we're embarking on that journey together in chapter 46. Look at 46, verse 1. Now, where are they right now? Before we, where are they? Canaan, which is also known as what? The promised land, that's right. Okay, 46.1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, in going to Egypt, what is Israel leaving? The promised land. That's a big deal. It's the promised land. Aren't we just supposed to get here and stay here? Wasn't it promised for that very fact, for that very purpose? What we're seeing here is that I don't want us to miss this drama and the divine movement. Old man Jacob is embarking on a new journey, and for the first time, Israel, now a people because of God's fulfilled promises, Israel is now a people. He, he has multiplied them. He's made them into many, just as he said he would. Um, and we will see them become many more in the coming years. But God has fulfilled his promises. He has multiplied them. And now Israel, as a people, will move into a place of worldwide influence for the glory of God. So don't miss this. They're going to be moving into a place of worldwide influence for the glory of God. But in order to do so, they have to leave the promised land, which is probably pretty uncomfortable. Upon leaving God's promised land, Israel makes it clear that he's not leaving behind the worship of God. That's how it works. They thought, you know, this is our place. This is where we're supposed to be. But things changed. That y'all may, you guys may have experienced that in some capacity as families. It may, you may find yourself in a job where you're like, man, this is the job I'm supposed to be in. You may find yourself uh, in a house or, or in a state, whatever, where you're thinking, this is where we're at. This is where we're supposed to be. And then circumstances change. And God says, no, it's time to move. And, and, and the move is going to be for, for your good and for my glory. And what what it's best for us to do is the same thing that, that Jacob does, and he goes, but he keeps worshiping God. 
He doesn't leave behind in the promised land the worship of God. He takes it with him, and he keeps worshiping. Um, uh, there's a point here of don't huddle up on a sweet piece of real estate and shut everyone else out. There's something that God will continue to do to his people to make them uncomfortable, to make sure that they're not going to huddle up on a piece of cool real estate and shut everybody else out. God has made it very uncomfortable. They're hungry. They're concerned about their livelihood. They're concerned about their families. They're concerned about their little ones that are mentioned in here. They're concerned about their flocks. And God is kind of turning things upside down, shaking it up so as to take them off of their good piece of real estate and, and, and say, you know what? Um, that's not my plan right now. And ultimately, the promised land is pointing us to what? What do we know it to be representative of? Heaven. Yeah. So they're not living just for this little kingdom on earth. The, the promised land is representative of our eternal destiny in the promised land in heaven. That, that is our eternal dwelling. So look at verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Now, Again, when we're studying the word, climb into the context. Import yourself, import your senses. What does this look like? What does this sound like? What was this like for Jacob? What was this like for those who were observing the situation? God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is sweet. You could imagine how stressful it would be for Jacob to take the whole family out of the promised land to Egypt. Egypt of all places. Who's someone else who went to Egypt when they shouldn't have? Yeah, earlier in, in Genesis, we see a couple of different occasions where it's like there was a temptation when things were hard to not trust God and go to Egypt because that's where all the goods were. Even though it was like a very sinful city, a, very, a place of flesh and just carnal movement all over the place, it wasn't best to go there, rather to trust God for provision. But here God is, is coming to him and saying, hey, I actually do want you to go to Egypt. And the sweet comfort is here where God's saying, I, I'm going to go with you. I, I'm not just sending you away from the promised land. And God's saying, I'm not contained to the promised land, by the way. I'm not contained to it. I, I'm going to be with you as you go. Um, there are some who refer to the Old Testament God and the New Testament God as sort of different gods. I don't know if y'all have heard that as maybe y'all have studied or, or heard different people um, refer to this, but there's some who refer to the Old Testament God and the New Testament God as different. And this verse actually goes a long way to putting that falsehood to rest. What I mean is this. Some refer to the Old Testament God as all wrath. Oh yeah, the Old Testament God. No one likes that guy. He's just all wrath. He's mean and he's mad at everybody the whole time. He's just, a, he's, he's moody. People will actually... Try to boil God down to that in the Old Testament. And then they say, ooh, but I really like the New Testament God because he's all grace and niceness, and he doesn't even care about my sin. False, 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 false. What this verse does is it helps us to understand that we see God here in the Old Testament full of grace and mercy coming to Jacob in visions of the night, and he comes to Jacob with tender comfort 
aiming to calm his fears and remind him of his presence. That's pretty sweet. So the Old Testament God is not just a God of all wrath and no grace. Here we see tender mercy, tender grace, affection, care. You see a shepherd shepherding his people, as it says in Isaiah, where he holds, he, he takes the young ones and he carries them and he, and, he, and he comforts them and he provides for them. So some of you might need that reminder that God is not in some far distant existence separate for now from his people. That's not the case for them and it's not the case for us. He is our ever-present help in trouble. What does that mean? A lot of us will cite that. What does that mean? He's our ever-present help in trouble. Just break it down. What does it mean? Always there. Even in trouble. What'd you say? He's not a hindrance. Help. We're getting there. He's always there. He's always our help in our trouble. In our trouble, what do we tend to do sometimes? What do we forget? God. That's what happens. Our sin gets the most of us. Our flesh takes over. Trouble arises, and it's like, God, where are you? And a lot of times he's like, I'm right here, the same way I was with all of your forefathers in the faith. There are times in the Psalms where we see that God will hide his face from his children, but we don't see God ever forsaking them. And here he goes to great lengths to comfort them and let them know he's the ever-present help in trouble. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Nothing separates us from the love of God. And in our trials and in our hardest seasons, Romans actually says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So that's not just the thing that we pray before our basketball games in high school, that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. It actually goes much further than that, that in our deepest troubles, our concerns, when we're thinking, man, is this the movement we're supposed to do? Are we abandoning something that we shouldn't be abandoning? What are we doing? God here is saying to Jacob, I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm your comfort. I'm your help. And in fact, you are more than a conqueror um, because of my love. And I want to make a connection here before we move to verse 5 to John 17. I don't know if all of you have heard the sermon from the last, last Sunday and the Sundays before, but what we're seeing is this God who is relational when he doesn't necessarily need us. Like, God's perfectly content. I mean, there's no need. It's not like Father, Spirit, Son are there in their, in their, commun- their Trinitarian community thinking, there's something missing. We need some people. That's not what's happening. However, they're relational. Our God is a relational God. And here he is coming down in a relational way and saying, hey, Joseph or Jacob, I'm caring for you and I'm going to be with you. And that should inform the way we are with each other. Ben's going to talk more about it this Sunday in John 17. But he is relational not just because he needs something. And sometimes we become relational only when we need something or only when someone needs something from us, as opposed to being relational for the sake of mirroring and reflecting the glory of our God and his existence. It's pretty cool when you try to wrap your head around it a little bit. Look at verse 5. Then Jacob set out for Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. This is crazy. The nation of Israel has been equipped by Pharaoh to come to Egypt. Like, this is pretty weird. This is not normal, and it's really cool. So they're taking them, uh, uh, their wives, the wagons, and the Pharaoh had sent to carry them. In verse 6, they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. 
Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So they're making a point that no one was left behind in this little movement. Let's take everybody, everyone's included, and we're all going to move together in this, moving in the direction that God has revealed. God has opened the door, God has made a way, God has provided, and they're moving. It's fairly unlikely that a bunch of Israelites are going to need to move to Egypt. God's made it clear, this is my plan. For us, a lot of times, we, we're, we just spend a lot of time trying to kick the door open that we think God's supposed to open, right? Where rather than he's opened the door, he's provided for this, let's just move forward in this. We're thinking, I like that door. And we're over there trying to kick the door open. Come on, God, open this door. When the reality is he's opened this one over here. Um, here, uh, God has opened the door and made a way. We spend a lot of time trying to kick open doors that God has not yet opened. And we spend way too much time complaining about our circumstances. I mean, just, just think. You don't, you don't have to answer out loud. But did any of you complain about your circumstances this week? Today? In the last hour? Since you've been sitting here? Um, we, we have a bad tendency towards complaining about our circumstances. And we have a bad tendency towards feeling entitled to uh, much more than maybe where we're at. Um, but the difference between complaining about our circumstances, if you were to like not complain, what you would be doing is trusting God with your circumstances. A lot of times that's when we need each other to come alongside and say, hey, it's not the end of the world. God is still good. He is still on his throne. You need to abandon your throne for a while and take off your little crown. And this is going to be okay. We're going to get through this. God is not a fool, he's not been tricked, and he is not taking a nap. We need each other to remind me of that. Because I guarantee when I'm in the place of thinking, oh, this is horrible, what's going on? This is just a tragedy. Oh, life is so hard, I don't deserve this. I need one of you to say, hey, it's okay. The Lord's sovereign. We will move through this. It is not the end of the world. We, I think that we're probably most sober-minded in community. Um, Proverbs, there's a, oh, Proverbs 18, I think. Something notes. Proverbs 8, yeah, Proverbs 18. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. What that says is that the most sound judgment does not exist in isolation. To to state it another way, the most sound judgment exists in community. So if you find yourself standing before your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you love, saying, you're all wrong and you're all stupid, that's not the most sound judgment. When you begin to isolate yourself, or if you think, I don't need anyone in this, that's not sound judgment. The most sound judgment exists in community. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire And in fact, he breaks out against all sound judgment. It's not just a matter of you don't have sound judgment. Now you're setting yourself against it. Has anyone ever experienced that? Everyone's dumb. No one understands my life. I'm the only one who's ever been through anything like this. I don't want to minimize anything that any of y'all might be going through. But I promise that the most sound judgment exists in community and not in isolationism. Not in your own world, separate from everybody else. We need each other to be sobered up to the realities of our reality. 
You like that? <laughs> Sobered up to the realities of our reality. That sounds dumb, but it's not. So, um, sober-minded bird's eye view here. Uh, it, when we're complaining about our circumstances and those around us at work or maybe our kids at home, what, is it, what are we actually communicating about our God if we're constantly complaining about our circumstances? Yeah, he's not being a very good God today, is he? Yeah, yeah, this could be much more sufficient if he was doing a little bit more. I mean, we communicate those things to coworkers, to our kids, to our spouse, maybe. Imagine if Jacob would have been like, this is ridiculous. It's the promised land. We're Israel. Doesn't Israel belong in the promised land? What does he think? How long is this chariot ride? What kind of chariots are they? Do they have a good suspension? My back's killing. Like, like it's just crazy the things that we can go to. And I don't want to ride with him. I'm not riding the chariot with that. I mean, we can just get so consumed with all these other little things where it's like, um, uh, we're, we're, we're not communicating any truth about our God by our response to the circumstance. A sober-minded bird's eye view. Now, they're leaving. They're going to Egypt. I'm asking you guys, what will eventually happen to God's people in Egypt? Slavery? Horrible oppression? Making bricks without straw? You ever tried to do that? Me either. I just didn't know if y'all had. Um, Great persecution. Now, here's my question. Knowing that, knowing that Israel is moving to Egypt and is about to face, or in the coming generations will face some of the most unbelievable persecution that Israel has ever faced, if you had the chance to step in right there, right, like, right here, they're in their chariots, God has said, God has shown you this future thing of what's going to happen, and you're like standing in front of them like, whoa, if you had the chance, would you warn Jacob of the future and encourage him not to go to Egypt? Weird question. Yeah, that, well, that's the thing. Even if you know the rest of the story, would you try to shield him from heartache? Sometimes the only way to experience what God has for you is to just, you're going to be in the middle of hard times and heartache that he's ordained. I was sitting here thinking, oh, they're going to Egypt, that's cool. And I'm like, oh, no, they're going to be really, I mean, they got some bad stuff ahead. Here in a few Pharaohs down, they're going to forget about old old Joseph, and they're going to start fearing the Israelites, and the Israelites are going to be oppressed, and I think we may, some of us may have a tendency to kind of jump in and say, oh, don't go to Egypt. But that's what God's plan is for his people. Go to Egypt. And while you're there, you will suffer. And while you're there, you'll also, remember John 17, you'll experience love from me that is the same as the love Jesus experiences from me as his father. There's a great comfort in that. There's no other way to face hardship and trial and persecution than that. If you don't have the love of God, you are destitute. That is really bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's not best to just swoop in and save someone from a mistake. I mean, obviously there's limits to that, but um, sometimes it's good to, 
you know, it, it looks like the Lord might be doing something here. Let's just see what happens. And let's be there for each other through those things. But maybe we don't have to try to, it's not like preventative care. Well, all we do is just make sure nothing bad ever happens to any of us. Bad things are going to happen to us. And we walk with each other through it, knowing that God is present and that he is comforting us, loving us, encouraging us, guiding us. What is more important than knowing the future? Like, make no mistakes. Knowing the future is really important to a lot of people on this planet. How do we know that? To call me now. Yeah. <laughs> Fortune tellers, right? You're thinking, oh, that's weird. There's th- that, that's a foreign concept. No, there's a palm reader, or now it's a tanning salon, but there was a palm reader <laughs> right there in the weird little house on 34 on Wesley. I mean, it's not... I mean, there's phone numbers for people to call and please tell me what's going to happen. Am I ever going to find love? You know, I mean, what about my job? What's more important than knowing the future? Knowing the God of the future. Knowing the God of creation. Trusting the God who spoke time into existence. Like, really cling to that. Like, don't settle for something less than that. The reason that, like, one of the deals that we see throughout Scripture is when there's a fortune teller, they always, if you got the money, they got the time. Do you have a credit card? I'll tell you what's going to happen to you next week. Sure. You got the money, I got the time. But God says, I, I, I spoke time into existence, and I'll take as long as it's needed to accomplish my purposes. And so sometimes we need to wait. There's a, con- a connection here to Philippians. Y'all have probably heard me or others pray this regularly, but... God speaks of a peace that exceeds understanding. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. That's prayer. And it says that what will happen there is that God will give you a peace that exceeds understanding. So if there's peace that exceeds understanding, what's more important to God? Peace. A lot of times we're like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I really would like some more understanding. God says, I actually give a peace that exceeds understanding. And that peace, in fact, guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So rather than knowing the future, rather than knowing how it's all going to work out, make your plans, be wise, be good stewards, move carefully. Think what you're going to say before you say it. Think what you're going to do before you do it. But trust the God who's in charge of all of it. And trust that when it doesn't go the way you think it should go or the way you wish it would go, that in fact God will give a peace that exceeds understanding. He, he is in fact saying through these verses, my children, it's not most important that you understand everything all the time as far as what the future holds and what's going to happen. That's not what's most important. He's saying, my children, what's most important is that you know that I am the God of peace and I will give you peace that exceeds that understanding that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ no matter what. So rather than being fearful, we move forward trusting God in all of this different movement that he has. I mean, just in this room, I know that there are unbelievable circumstances that each of you have faced in different capacities, different trials, different uh, seasons of uncertainty. I mean, there's people here who have gone through adoption processes. There's people here whose children have been in the hospital recently. There's people here who are dealing with um, aging parents that you're having to care for, and it's a new hard season. There are people here who have dealt with financial woes. There are people here who have dealt um, with issues uh, regarding uh, peers and movement at work that is very difficult. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that many of you have faced, and more than what I just said. And God 
is with us through those things. It's not most important that we know exactly how it's all going to work out. Now, verses 8 through 27 is a long list of names. Normally, I would be uh, inclined to read them all. But tonight, um, what, what I want to point out is this. This is a genealogical record that is important. Um, you know what? I am going to read them all because I said I would as I was praying in preparation. As I read this record, quickly, uh, know this. It's easy to come to these points in our Bible, like I'm trying to journal through my Old Testament right now. I'm in Leviticus, and it is hard to journal through Leviticus because it's like more blood, more blood. And uh, uh, when we come to these areas where there's people listed in long genealogies, it's easy to be like, yeah, 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 okay, give, give me to the good stuff. But what I want you to know that as I read this, this genealogical record is important because with it, we can actually trace the lineage of Christ back to the family of Abraham. 70 is a picture of completeness, uh, as many of you have heard in the word before. And though it is hard to read through, which each, with each name mentioned, you hear of a life impacted and changed by a very real and redemptive God. God has done things in the lives of each of these people, particularly, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, and the son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Gohath, Merari, that's a cool one, Merari, I like that one. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Shelah, whatever, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shemron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and put on Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, or Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, Areli, these the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beria, with Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchiel. Uh, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and, there, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, who's at, whom Asenoth, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of on bore to him and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becker, uh, Ashbel, Jerah, Naaman, Ichai, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. <laughs> These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, Husham, Hush. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jazer, Shilam, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Thank you. Um, this is Moses' recounting. Remember, Moses wrote this. Moses is the guy who, who, who gave us this record. And he saw it as fit to include this in his recounting. Every name mentioned is just like yours. A person, a member of a family, a mom or a dad, a friend, undeserving of such divine love, yet loved perfectly by God. This was Moses' recounting, and it should fuel our worship as it did his. 
Look at verse 28. This is where it gets really cool. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Now, after reading the genealogy, I don't want you to lose sight of the drama of the story. This is very dramatic. Jacob is about to be reunited with Joseph, who he thought was dead up until just a few days ago. This is a big deal. So they send Judah ahead to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. This is a reunion of reunions. My son is alive. And the son saying, my dad is alive. And they're reuniting and they're weeping together and they're hugging each other. And, and we see uh, Jacob, Israel say, I can die now. I saw my son. I thought you were gone. I thought you were dead. I held the bloody cloak in my hands and your brothers told me you were eaten. And they let me believe that. But, but here, this is sweet. It's my son. This is a big, big reuniting. After over 20 years, they're reunited. This is probably not the way that either of them would have planned life. Agree? Do you think that either of them would have planned it this way? Where they'd be removed from each other for over a couple of decades and then reunited in Egypt, not in the promised land anymore under these weird circumstances? They wouldn't have planned it this way. But by God's divine order, these two share a sweet reuniting, a reuniting that represents far more of God's movement than what is simply seen in these two lives. This reuniting affects the entire nation of Israel, and this reuniting affects us sitting here today. It's actually quite cool when you look at the connections and all the dots that are connected. Look at verse 31 through 34. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, now listen to this instruction. Joseph is emotional. Joseph is reunited with his father. Joseph is overwhelmed with joy. But Joseph is also sober-minded, and he knows we're not done yet. we got some things we got to take care of. So even in the midst of this, we see the sober-minded in Joseph, sober-mindedness and order in Joseph's life that should inform us. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought all their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Guys, listen, you guys say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the, to the Egyptians. So, so he's saying, hey, Tell them you're shepherds, because when you do that, you'll get to dwell in the land of Goshen, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph moves very wisely behind the scenes. And God blesses the movement, particularly by placing his people in the most choice area of the land. As we transition from Genesis to Exodus, it will be important to keep your eye on Joseph, or on, on Goshen and Joseph. 
Uh, why is it incredibly ironic that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians? Don't miss that little tidbit of information. Joseph's a shepherd, was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Yeah, there's sort of this shepherd theme with God's people. And the Egyptians are like, that's an abomination. What's another way of saying abomination? Does it mean deplorable, hate in all caps, disgusting, revolting, no thanks. That's, how, that's what that means. And here, um, it is unbelievably ironic that the Egyptians see every shepherd as an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, look at chapter 47, verses 1 through 4. We'll get into this a little more. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. I, I bet he took the five best dressed ones or something. I don't know. But here's the five, the, the most regal looking. I don't know. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, just like his brother said, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. So we're not just shepherds. Our whole family has always been shepherds. We've all shepherded. We are shepherds through and through. The guys who were here before us, our fathers, grandfathers, great shepherds, just as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan, and now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Now, Joseph's family is listening to Joseph and following the orders that he's given They've always been shepherds. Consider the implications if the Israelites would have abandoned shepherding upon entry into Egypt. What are, what are some implications there? What if, mix in with the people, wouldn't have been preserved? Yeah, muddy. It's almost like the waters would have been totally muddied if they abandoned shepherding. They wouldn't have been out in the fields of Goshen taking care of the livestock. They would have been right in the thick of the commerce and trade and economy that's floundering right now but will bounce back later in Egypt. It would have been a bad deal. When Jesus arrives as the good shepherd, it wouldn't even have meant anything. It would have been like, oh yeah, we used to be that, but the Egyptians thought it was an abomination and we're all Egyptian-y now. That would, that would be bad. That would not turn out well if they abandoned shepherding. Now, why would Jacob be willing to open himself up to such contempt? Joseph. Why would Joseph be willing to open himself up to such contempt? How is he opening himself up to contempt? Yeah. Hey, Pharaoh, most powerful guy in the world right now. This is my family. Um, we're all an abomination to you and your people. It's, it's sort of like this guy's worked his way up. I mean, have you ever been embarrassed by your family before? Were you with your friends who at least somewhat respect you, and then your goofy uncle or your silly brother or whatever comes in, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, we're from the same stock. We're the we're same family. There's sort of an embarrassment that can happen even in much smaller circumstances with us because we're ten we tend to be very selfish and self-serving and want everyone to see us as the king of our own little castle in our kingdom. Um, here... Joseph actually opens himself up to contempt. And I would say that it's because 
it was worth being able to keep his family separate from being swallowed up in the Egyptian population. Exactly what you just said. That it, it was worth the risk of being seen as an abomination, even to Pharaoh. He'd proven he can work hard. He had proven uh, that he's going to do his job well. He'd proven that he cares for the people and he cares for the well-being of, of this place. However, it was worth being opened up to ridicule or being seen as an abomination to keep the people of Israel from being just kind of swallowed up by the population of Egypt. Now, um, yes, yes, there's great wisdom here. I mean, you can imagine him saying, oh, I cannot let my brothers go to downtown Egypt. If my brothers go to downtown Egypt, this is going to turn out real bad. I need to keep them out in the fields, tending to the livestock like they've always done. Absolutely. There's a lot of wisdom here. You know the, the phrase, the thing that we see in the Psalms, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? That applies here. Essentially, that's what Joseph is saying. He's saying, better is it to, to have one day in the court of the Lord than to be just kind of swallowed up into this other thing that might be real exciting for a while, but it has nothing to do with our God. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Joseph's been shepherding Egypt. I mean, it's a pretty cool dynamic here. So he goes in, and essentially he says to his family, tell them you're a loser. It'll work out better. That's what just happened. Tell them you're a loser, and it'll be better. I promise, because it keeps them separate, and then it, it shines some light on the way that Joseph's been moving. That's exactly right. Um, what would you do if your loved one introduced you to the most powerful magistrates of the land uh, as one in an occupation that lacks honor? This is my brother, the loser. That would be awkward, right? As uh, What if you were just introduced for who you are? I mean, they were shepherds, right? Would it make you uncomfortable if you were always introduced as the Christian? Would you be ashamed of the gospel if that happened? The next meeting you went to, if you were, to, hey, this is, uh, this is so-and-so, he's a, he's a Christian, would that make you, oh, I wish he wouldn't have said that. Now I can't cuss. Well, I mean, <laughs> would it be uncomfortable for you? This is uh, so-and-so the Christian. Oh, I wish, I wish that wasn't oh, cat let out of the bag. I guess got to operate under certain circumstances now. Show some character. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we kind of want to keep that on the down low until the time is right. The time's always right. We're believers through and through, no matter where we're at. That's not, that's not the thing that God says, keep that a secret for a while. That's not a secret. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what happens if he lies? And Pharaoh's like, oh, why didn't you tell me the truth? What happened to the cupbearer and the baker? The cupbearer and the baker were only where they were because they were extremely trustworthy. You don't make the food for the most powerful guy in the world unless you're trustworthy. They did something to jail. Not a whole lot of mercy and grace in the Egyptian culture there. If he would have lied, it would have shown things. There's so much wisdom in these verses. Joseph is extremely wise in the way that he moves. Very low, yeah. 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 By God's design. So uh, look at uh, verse 5. 
This is pretty cool too. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Oh, cool. We're losers, but we all just got jobs. That's a pretty sweet setup. There's a lot of wisdom being, being moved in here. Pharaoh blesses Joseph and his family by granting their request to settle in Goshen. When you work hard and you always give it your best and you pay attention to the details and you follow through and you tend to the, the things that maybe even seem insignificant to other people, it's more likely that your boss or your superior would grant your request should you have one. Adversely, if Joseph had put in the minimum effort in all of his endeavors, he would not even have gotten to the position that he's in. If he was constantly mediocre in his work, regularly overlooking important details, then Pharaoh would not likely have granted such a request as this one. But because he worked hard and exhibited character and follow-through and attention to detail, he was not only a blessing to his immediate family, but a blessing to the people, a blessing to us as we sit here today. It's a pretty, pretty big blessing there for the glory of God. Do you have this sort of big picture view in the work you do or in the things you put your hands to? That it might not just be about me being told I did a good job today. This might bless my family. This might flow over and bless the people I'm a part of and ultimately bless God's kingdom for his glory and the good of his people. That's how we should do things. That's how we should move and do our work and tend to our details of our lives. Look at verse 7. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? It's a long way of saying, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. I mean, he's sharing the gospel with Pharaoh in the way that he answers, how old are you? I'm a sojourner, and God's been doing a work in my forefathers before me. Pretty cool. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. <laughs> Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Old man Israelite blessed Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world at the time. He blessed him and went out from his presence, from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them the possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Everybody was taken care of. You had to leave the promised land. You had to go into a place of total uncertainty. And guess what? Everyone was taken care of. Was it easy? No. Did we have to stand before the Pharaoh? Yes. Did we have to pay attention to the details and say what Joseph told us to say? Absolutely. Are we seen as an abomination to everyone around us? Uh-huh. Do we all have food right now? Yes. We have a place to stay right now? Uh-huh. Are we swimming in gold and riches? No, absolutely not. You don't need that. But here they're taken care of and they're provided for. The significance of Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Do you think it was authentic? Do you think he was standing before the Pharaoh and when he blessed him, do you think that was authentic? I do. Yeah, I think so. Can you bless someone who's godless? Yeah, I think it was just it was outward worship. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, they were married before Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that. 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's been blessed by the hand of Pharaoh in a funny way, and he hasn't it hasn't gone unrecognized. But Pharaoh's godless. Pharaoh doesn't give a rip about God. Pharaoh thinks he is God. How would you react? Can you bless the godless? A lot of times when we get in the midst of the godless, it doesn't matter how nice they are to me. It doesn't matter how kind they've been. We just, yeah, I don't have room for them. They're godless. You know, to wherever with you. That's not the response of the believer. He, in fact, blesses a godless person here, and we, in fact, can follow the lead and bless godless people around us all the time. We should aim to bless people who have nothing to do with God, who don't care about God at all. Surely there's an aim that they would care about the Lord. But that's not even necessarily the only reason we do it. We do it because he tells us to. Yes, it was authentic. Yes, you can bless someone who's godless. Um, turn to Jeremiah 29.7. We'll end with this, and I'll cite a couple others. But just turn over to Jeremiah 29.7. Uh, many of the uh, Israelites who are left, Nebuchadnezzar has sent them into Babylonian exile. And so Jeremiah is writing a letter and it's a prophetic letter from the Lord uh, to communicate to the Israelites who are in exile, much like Joseph and Jacob. They're sojourners. That's how they respond, refer to themselves, sojourners, and they're sojourning. In, Jer- in Jeremiah 29, we'll start in verse 6, and he's telling them, well, we'll start in verse 4. And he's saying, this is what the Lord says for you to do while you're in Babylon. Babylon's a lot like Egypt. The cool thing is, what do we know about Babylon and Egypt today? It's a train wreck. Not a lot of order. Especially Egypt in the news right now. But Egypt and Babylon, if you look in in the scriptures, they were the world powers through the large majority of our Old Testament. No one's worried right now about an invasion from Babylon. Egypt's a train wreck right now. What we see is these nations that were great have been brought low. But what do we know about the, the true nation of the true Israel? It's sitting here having a Bible study. Not all of ethnic Israel is the only Israel. Children of the promise over children of just the flesh in Romans. So you, as a true Israel, sit here today. And so it's pretty cool because here, there in Babylon, much like uh, Israel was in Egypt before, they're in exile. And it says in verse 4, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, go get a house, get a garden, make some babies. That's what's being said here. Take wives for your sons. Tell, let your kids get, get married at some point. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Remember, sand of the shore, stars of the sky. I aim to make more of you people, Israel, my children. That's what God's saying. Don't decrease. Don't just like get married and skate and think I have no interest in in, in family things or, or other people's families or others in the, in the church. 
There's so many people who get married and it's like they they're not a member of a community, they're not a member of a church. I, I watch these shows about like the, the uh, finding the dream house and the dream location where, where it's these two people who don't give a rip about anybody else on the planet. They just go live in this awesome house on the beach and do their work from their computer. And they don't generally, usually, in these shows, I'm sure there's believers in the shows, I'm not laying a blanket statement down, but a lot of them just don't even give a rip about anyone. In fact, a lot of times you hear talk about, oh, it's so nice to get away from everybody so we can be selfish together. We're just selfish people. They don't say that. That's what they mean. <laughs> but here what we're seeing is he's saying, don't, don't decrease be about community. Be about the church. Um, if you have children, awesome. If you don't, care about other people's children too. It's important. This is a big church family. Your family. You are my children. I am your father. Do not decrease. And listen to this in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its wealth. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. When's the last time you prayed for the city of Greenville? Probably should. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Pray for the leadership so that they might lead in a way where we can live the life God tells us to lead and other people can see it. And if we can't live the peaceful and quiet life, that we could be peaceful and quiet people trusting the Lord in the midst of great turmoil. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 says, These all died in faith, referring to many who we read about in our Old Testament, Abraham, Joseph, Jacob not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Imagine them leaving the promised land. As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The fact that we have a heavenly city awaiting us does not minimize our involvement here and the things we do. We pray for those around us. We aim to bless the godless. We aim to care about the welfare of our city. We aim to do all we can to essentially just put on display for everyone we engage the glory of our great God. It's like the same message over and over. I don't have anything new to tell you this week, and I'm not going to have anything new to tell you next week. Go be the people of God in whatever circumstance he has for you for the glory of God and good of his people. That's what we see here. That's what we're going to see the next week and the next week and the next week. Let's pray so you can go get your kids. Lord, thank you for our time. I pray that we would walk in this truth. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.